If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. We got one for you today. Uh, we bring back Michael Cremo for his annual talk. And today we're talking about repressed discoveries from our past. This is a... Uh, a special program that highlights the discovery of modern humans in the northern Mexican region and the great age of this discovery of over a quarter of a million years old. Now, history says to us that Homo sapiens sapiens arrived in the United States about twelve to 15,000 years ago. And when this information was delivered to the scientific community, it was immediately suppressed. The research team uh, was disbanded, and in some cases, people lost their careers. So Michael will tell us the details, give us the highlights, and the, the complete history of this amazing discovery. Later, Jin Deo takes us to China, and an excavation site for an unknown culture who were sea mariners, and also very sophisticated sculptors. This is a uh, uh, people we don't really know much about, but their uh, artifacts are simply amazing. All this in the news today on Earth Ancients. Saturday, October 10th, 2020. This is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. Ein Hochbräuhaus, ein Zweig, Sommer, bei euch. 
Yeah, yeah, normally that would be uh, no, music to celebrate by. That is Oktoberfest music. And uh, I am sitting here in my Lederhosen with a beer and uh, enjoying the music. Now, uh, I've mentioned before that Oktoberfest has been canceled around the world, including here in San Francisco. We can't celebrate King Ludwig's uh, marriage, which is uh, was <laughs> consecrated, I guess, in eight, the eighteen hundred early eighteen hundreds. But Oktoberfest is a sixteen day celebration. I mentioned uh, in the past that I am a quarter German, and I do love to celebrate and enjoy a couple of beers or two. It's uh, it's just fun. It's kind of an adult entertainment. It's like adult. I guess you could call it like adult Halloween. Because people dress up, you know, women wear the traditional dress and the guys wear their the shorts with the straps, the the uh, the lederhosen. <laughs> so uh, I am missing it, and uh, you know, you you want to feel some form of normalcy during this 2020 uh, pandemic, you know, that shut the world down, and you can't go out and party, you can't go to bars, you can't go to restaurants because you're not allowed. I mean, I think the at least here in Northern California, the maximum event you can have is with uh, 10 people who are socially distancing, staying six feet away from each other, wearing masks. Some people are wearing goggles and, and gloves and stuff like that. So yeah, we're still in the midst of the pandemic. And so uh, this is my little happy Oktoberfest and that music, I hope, brings the celebration to mind. And so it's fun. So Hey, this is Cliff, your host. Welcome to Earth Ancients, and I hope you are doing well. Hey, this week I mentioned uh, we have the formidable Michael Cremo, author of Forbidden Archaeology. And uh, if you haven't read his book, Forbidden Archaeology, you know, I can't say it's an easy read. It's very technical. It's uh, 800 pages. It's a tome. It's a it's actually an encyclopedia of cases where evidence of extreme antiquity, uh, be it human skeletons, art- artifacts, uh, buildings are dated uh, uh, to periods that do not correspond with our current history. And so they're either squelched, ignored, or repressed from our history. And uh, I wanted to have Michael on the show because I have been uh, going over and over this case of Mexico, uh, this discovery of a site uh, that was dated to 250,000 years ago. And the reason I wanted to bring him back is that and I just discovered a few months ago that it wasn't some weird hominin like uh, Homo erectus or some ape-like uh, creature uh, uh, encampment that they found. It was modern human, uh, Homo sapien sapien. Uh, and what they found was stone tools, uh, flints, cutting tools, and shearing uh, for pelts and things like that. Uh, and they found a, a number of artifacts that uh, really show uh, that these were sophisticated humans. And you have to remember this. Uh, what our current history tells us is that Homo sapien sapiens entered North America approximately 12, 
uh, 10 to 12,000 years ago. And so when they got these dates, uh, and this is the 1960s, um, uh, the dates of 250,000 years, uh, the, the initial archaeological team was, was a little shocked. And so they brought in a geological team. Actually, uh, they brought an a American uh, U.S. geological survey team to do what they felt was more accurate testing. And uh, the key figure in this uh, story is a woman named Virginia Steen McIntyre. And we've talked about her in the past. And uh, I've, uh, we, we, we had an excerpt a few weeks ago where she spoke about her discovery. But she went by the books, used all the standard testing mechanisms, including radiocarbon dating, uranium dating. Back then, they had something called zircon fusion track dating, which is extremely accurate. Uh, and they, they even used that. And they after they came back with dates, it was even more shocking. It was 250 to 330,000 years in the past. And uh, so the story goes, and we'll hear it in detail today with Michael, that uh, they didn't want to report this, whatever. The archaeological team knew that it would cause problems because, you know, they're hoping for 20, you know, something that's 20 or 30,000 years in the past. 250,000 years uh, is a severe, it goes really against the grain. Um, and so uh, a couple of other things to mention and I think it's pretty obvious to, to you who are listening each week to the show. When dates come back that are extreme, it really shakes up the academic community because, look, they, they have the dates, they've set them uh, in history, and, and they do not want to change them. We see this in Egypt. Uh, we see this in Central and South America. We see this in Australia, in Europe. Uh, it's just too much trouble to consider uh, dates that uh, rock the boat. And here we are, uh, a date that is an extreme, extreme past, 250,000 years ago. And uh, there's no way to, to, uh, to, to uh, uh, make it credible. So uh, in this case, uh, they basically squelched it. They went beyond that. They closed down the entire site. Um, they uh, confiscated all the artifacts, and we'll hear more about that today. And this is what Michael calls, Michael Cremo calls, knowledge filtration. And uh, you confront archaeological communities, you front, uh, uh, confront the universities and say, why, why, why? Uh, it's, just, it's just too much trouble for them to consider history and uh, revising history. Uh, now, I think Gobekli Tepe in Turkey is a place that they are forced to revise their dates. Now, remember, uh, Gobekli Te Tepe dates to 12,000 BC. And so they, and because it was a German university uh, that did the research and also the testing, they are slowly coming around to it and, and looking at it a little differently. Unfortunately, the changes take decades. In some cases, people have to pass away. Uh, uh, really staunch uh, defenders of current history are like, uh, you know, you have to kill me before I change my mind. <laughs> so natural selection or, or natural occurrences, people pass away. And I think that's 
that's just human nature. You know, you wait for the new younger thought uh, or unique thinking to come up and be uh, have greater acceptance. And that's that's where uh, history has changed. But people like Graham Hancock and uh, Robert Bavall and I mean, uh, many, many, many people that we have here on the show are faced with uh, the orthodoxy who say this is how it is. Your information does not work for us. And so if you continue, we're going to uh, squelch you. We're going to you know, uh, call you uh, fakes. Uh, we're going to be skeptical of what you present in the face of scientific research. So a lot of the guys we have here, Graham and the other people, even, even Dr. Robert Schock, who's a noted uh, professor at Boston University who used science to redate the Great Sphinx, in Egypt, it was called into question, and uh, you know uh, g- the geological community is much more open to extreme dates than the archaeological community. The, the anthropologists just do not want to bend, and so hey, this kind of what makes Earth Ancients fun. But uh, anyhow, so getting back to my point, when I discovered that these were Homo sapiens, uh, modern humans that had settled in this area over, you know, and stay there for, for thousands of years, northern uh, Mexico, um, uh, Mexico, north of Mexico City, uh, I was perplexed. And so I went back and I read the, the section in his uh, book, uh, for uh, Forbidden Archaeology, and I thought to myself, got to get him on. Gotta, we want to get clarification on this. Um, and so that's our program today. And it's, it's exciting to hear him talk about it. Because he was one, he, uh, he's, he co-wrote uh, Forbidden Archaeology with Richard Thompson. Uh, they were both interviewed on this program called the, Mis- uh, the Mysterious Origins of Man, uh, NBC. It was seen by millions of people. And look, this is 1996 that this aired. And a little later on, we're going to hear a young Michael Cremo talking about uh, Virginia Steen McIntyre's discovery and uh, why it's a, a tragedy that she and her research was uh, suppressed. So that's our program today. It's great to have Michael on. Uh, he's always fun to to speak with. And the revelations are, are clear that we our history is suppressed. And I, I guess I'm shocked that we're Western historians are not more open. And we go through this uh, with different authors and, and research investigators we have on the show. I did want to mention one thing about the Mars material. Uh, if you haven't, if, if you're somebody who's having a hard time with, with the material that I'm presenting on Mars, this is not casual material. And I wanted to bring up a book written by Graham Hancock, it's called The Mars Mystery, The Secret Connection Between Earth and the Red Planet. Now, he wrote this, he wrote this years ago. It was, uh, uh, it came out in 1998. Uh, and he, he kind of wrote it because he took on Richard Hoagland's work and in, in his book and, and he did his own research. And he does find a link between, uh, the Egyptians, the dynastics, the pre-dynastics and, what he sees on the surface in some of the very, very early 
satellite photography brought back by the Viking surveyor. Um, so it's not something that I, I talk about casually. And uh, I'm firmly convinced, and if you go to the Facebook page, this whole week I've been posting photographs from some of the top image specialists in the world. Uh, and, and the data and these these photos are, are becoming just very, very uh, uh, poignant uh, that there was a horrific event, uh, either a nuclear event or something that caused the toppling of buildings and dwellings and structures uh, thousands of years ago, maybe even a million of years ago. And the evidence is proof in these rover documents, uh, these ro rover photographs. Now, for years, we were uh, left with just uh, images from satellites. But uh, when they started using rovers, and we're talking about the Curiosity rover, and the other uh, current active uh, rover is Opportunity. And between those two, we are seeing fantastic evidence of uh, buildings, of sculptural reliefs of uh, dwellings and machinery that was uh, destroyed in a real violent fashion, twisted metal, uh, caved in uh, buildings and dwellings and things like that. So uh, I just want you to know that if you want to see more evidence, you have to go to the Facebook page under um, Earth Ancients uh, group page. And I've been posting some very, very good images. And I, I, I really think they're going to get better and better to the point where you'll be able to see very clearly um, the evidence of, of uh, man-made structures, artificial structures. Um, and, and we spoke about this uh, before. When uh, SpaceX gets to Mars or the Chinese, cat's out of the bag. Cat's out of the bag because... Uh, a man mission wearing uh, cameras, a vehicles wearing cameras, orbiters with cameras. It's just going to get uh, imaged to the tenth degree, uh, and so they're not going to be able to, to cover it up anymore. So, hey, it's going to be interesting to hear just how NASA JPL <laughs> explains themselves when uh, it's not microbes anymore. It's a sculpture of a man. It's a sculpture of an animal. It's a building with a door. It's a, uh, it's a machine of some kind. Yeah, well, it's not microbes, people. It's, it's the proof of a, of a lost civilization. So, ah, oh, man, am I looking forward to that. I really am. Hey, I want to mention that our uh, Egypt tour is still fired up and uh, going strong. We are uh, have rescheduled it. It was supposed to be this month, and it's being rescheduled for May 18th through the 30th, 2021. And uh, this is a VIP-level tour. I talk about it a lot. We had uh, and have had um, Mohammed Imbriam, our archaeologist and tour guide, on the show. He's going to do a special program in a few weeks uh, about some new discoveries they've made there that we will have a chance to see. But uh, we're about halfway full. I just want to remind you, if you have any inkling to join us, there is close to a 40% discount for, across the board for the um, tour. That does not include your airfare, but it includes all the accommodations, all your food, all the, all the travel, and, and all the passes to see these things. And I, I keep saying 
this. It's really what you can consider a diplomatic tour. Now, when I say that, what does that mean? It means that the sites are cordoned off for uh, us, or we have special permission. And this is what's uh, really quite amazing. We'll see a temple. We'll see a site uh, that is only a lo- uh, that we only have access to. So the general public is cordoned off and uh, left to their own devices. Why we have a private access, private tour of a number of these sites, including. This is what blows me away. We get to see the Great Pyramid on our own for two hours. That means going inside the king, the queen's chamber, the subterranean levels. I mean, it's just such a cool tour uh, that uh, I, I can't speak about it enough. So again, May 18th through the 30th, go to earthancients.com forward slash tours. Click on the banner the full itinerary is there. Now, for those of you who are wondering about the uh, the virus, uh, we will be uh, preparing for it. Uh, one of the things is you have to do a, have a test wherever you're located and have to show uh, 72 hours before you arrive that you are uh, negative for the virus. And we'll also be social distancing. We get to wear these really cool uh, Bluetooth headsets so we can hear Muhammad. And, you know, uh, socially distance where we need to be. But, hey, uh, Freddie Silva just had a group there. He says it was a blast. It was fantastic. And uh, it's going to be great. So things will be different in 2021, let's hope, <laughs> because uh, this year has been terrible. But uh, come out and join me uh, for our second annual European tour. Uh, and it's going to be a blast. And, by the way, the new billion-dollar Grand uh, Egyptian Museum will be open by then, and that's a world-class tour. We'll be spending a day there uh, to see all the amazing uh, sites, uh, all the amazing artifacts and uh, statuary. It's just very cool. One last thing, we've we've changed the format of the show just a little bit, just tweaking it a little bit. Uh, same great content, same people, our regulars, Jindeo, and Bruce Fenton are with us as always, but uh, just a little tweaking and uh, shouldn't shouldn't be too big a deal. So here is today's program. Enjoy. It's true that some things change as we get older, but if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at MIDI Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. 
And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. In 1996, the NBC production company put together a show called The Mysterious Origins of Man, and it was hosted by uh, then well-known actor Charlton Heston. We all know Charlton from a number of movies, Moses. He played Michelangelo. He's a very well-known actor. And uh, this was a program on uh, the discoveries that had been made that oddly enough had not come to the public's notice, the public's eye, or been written about. And how in the heck they put this together and got it okayed is beyond me. It's fantastic that they did it because when this show aired, it caused such a ruckus that uh, the archaeological community was just up in arms. They wanted it canceled immediately. They wanted uh, retractions stated publicly it was just uh, a, a real problem for them. And we're going to hear an excerpt from a, a young Michael Cremo, 1996, is when this aired. And then uh, we're going to replay a portion of uh, Virginia Steen McIntyre's description of what she found in the evidence of this uh, Mexican archaeological dig that we're talking about today on the show. So here's a short excerpt uh, of both Michael and Virginia speaking about their discovery. This bizarre evidence seems to have been well documented, yet the general public and many within the scientific community are unaware of these controversial finds. The question is, why haven't we heard of these discoveries before? Oh, I think we're talking about a massive cover-up. Uh, as I said, over the past 150 years, uh, these archaeologists and anthropologists have covered up as much evidence as they've dug up, literally. Basically, what you find is uh, something we call a knowledge filter. This is a fundamental feature of science. It's also a fundamental feature of human nature. People tend to filter out things that don't fit that don't make sense in terms of their paradigm or their way of thinking. So in science, you find that evidence that doesn't fit the accepted paradigm tends to be eliminated. It's not taught, it's not discussed, and people who are educated in, in scientific teachings generally don't even learn about it. Conventional theory states that modern man originated in southern Africa around 100,000 years ago. From there, he migrated north into Europe and southern Asia, continued through Asia, and crossed the Bering Strait into the New World around 30,000 years ago. He then came down through North America and finally arrived in South America around 15,000 years ago. 
Yet numerous artifacts have been found across North and South America that are so old they threaten to completely overturn this theory. According to geologist Virginia Steen McIntyre, she was silenced at the height of her career because of her determination to report the facts. In the summer of 1966, a collection of stone tools, including this leaf-shaped spear point, was uncovered at Hoyatlico, Mexico. To find out exactly how old the spear points were, a team of experts from the United States Geological Survey was called in to date them. When we first began to work on the Wayatlaco site, we thought we had an old site. This was back in 66, and we thought it was perhaps 20,000 years old. And at that time, that was considered a very old age for the site. We did what they call radiometric dates, which gives an actual date range. And we used two different methods to do that. One was using uranium uh, atoms, another one was using little zircon crystals. When we finally got the dates and all the different methods we used to date it, it came out to be 250,000 years old. To tell you the truth, I would have been happy with a 20,000-year-old date. It would have made my career. It was very old for the time, but it wasn't so old that it was that controversial. People can take 20,000-year steps. They can't take steps that are over 200,000 years at one time. And I was rather naive. I thought, okay, we've got something big here, but I'm just going to stick with the date. We've got the information. We've got the facts. Let's get the facts out and go on from there. And I didn't realize it was going to ruin my whole career. Now, the closest thing we have to uh, this TV special, uh, The, the uh, Mysterious Origins of Man, is the History Channel. And the History Channel occasionally will play and create a uh, production of a discovery. And occasionally, Prometheus, which produces Ancient Aliens and a show I've been on, Unexplained, with uh, William Shatner, will have a theme about uh, extreme antiquity and the discovery of uh, what looks like uh, evidence of modern man that go back uh, hundreds of thousands of years. And, and so that, I occasionally will do that show, and it's fun. But uh, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the same effect as being on a major network like NBC, CBS, ABC. Here in the United States, that is. Uh, I guess the equivalent would be uh, major BBC programming, and then wherever you live, Think of your major network uh, playing a, a documentary on evidence for ex- extreme antiquity of modern humans. It just the scientific community gets very, very upset because you're calling them on their history, you know. And it's like, how dare you say that there's another history out there? There's another version of history. So, you know, that's the beauty of Earth Ancients. So we talk about it whether you like it or not. <laughs> Yeah, and I get people upset at me too. I get I get uh, academics uh, writing to me and saying, "Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing?" And I, and sometimes I have the strength and the energy to not the strength, but I have the energy to write them back. So anyhow, I find these questions and and so much more about our history just fascinating, and motivated me to launch Earth Ancients uh, and write about. Uh, my discoveries in the Mesoamerican uh, world and for many of the people we have here on the show uh, uh, to write and to report their findings, which in many cases are much, much different than what uh, we currently understand as our history. (laughs) 
Time to check in with Jen Deo. Jen is our resident archaeologist. She's located in uh, Minnesota, and uh, she is really the pulse, or she's checking the pulse on various discoveries from around the world. And this week, Jen, we're going to China, and I guess it's uh, the disappearance of a very, very unusual civilization. So let's, let's hear a little bit about that. This is a uh, culture that is in or from Sensei Dui. Uh, and I, I looked up the pronunciation of that because I would <laughs> never be able to pronounce that on my own. Yeah. It is basically, the meaning of that name is Three Star Mound. Um, this is a Bronze Age culture that existed between the 12th and 11th century. They're thought to have belonged to the ancient kingdom of Shu. And What's really what I find um, interesting about this, or maybe even intriguing, is that they kind of just disappeared. And they had some technologies that were very different than other groups that should have been doing kind of the same thing. And it's kind of under the premise of that um, Chinese culture developed in a central plain of the Yellow River. And that's not necessarily true because this culture did not develop there. It developed er elsewhere. One of the things that is probably the most, um, how you would identify with this group is that they, they had boat shaped tombs. They also had these really elaborate um, inland navigation areas. They had irrigation, flood control, and deep set canals for um, navigating um, into the ocean, which mm-hmm. is a little bit a little bit more rare. Um, the reason why we know they moved and that they left from the area that they were in was because they ritually disfigured some very very important objects. These were objects made of gold, pottery, ivory, bronze, and then some uh, jewelry. I believe made of clamshell. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really questionable that they would do that, and then they just threw it in this uh, like a, a sewer canal or a place where you wouldn't think that you'd put very important objects. And the reason they found this is because they were actually digging, and I believe that they were either putting in a highway or some um, transportation system, and they found these beautiful bronze images, and they're yeah. they're sculptural, I would say. Yeah, I recognize these sculptures, uh, but you have some photos of very close-up photo uh, images of these uh, sculptures, and they're gorgeous. They're huge. What, real quickly, what's the time period for these people? Well, these are these are Bronze Age, so this is twelfth, eleventh century. So you're mm-hmm. looking at about two to three thousand years ago, okay. essentially, for these folks. They're, this is what I would say. So what we know about them, why they aren't here, most likely is because they were, um, they were displaced by some sort of natural disaster. And maybe not just one natural disaster. We know that there was an earthquake in their region. We know that they did suffer some pretty significant landslides. We see that in the archaeological record. Mm-hmm. But after mm-hmm. these things happen, they just left. They were just done. Mm-hmm. Um And as for where they went, we don't really know. I mean, they could have been, you know, assimilated, I suppose, to some degree. But I would think that we would see some uh, vestige of them. One other very telling thing is that their metallurgical processes for this particular group and region 
were totally different than the rest of um, China per se. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that because we, we, we mentioned that before we started. The composition of their bronze apparently is uh, kind of either unmatched or very unique. Yeah, it is very unique. And it's very, um, it's like a signature, essentially. So Mm -hmm. they were contemporary with the Shang dynasty. Mm -hmm. And the Shang also had a very distinct bronze um, signature, per se, but they were totally separate. And we're not talking about massive, massive uh, distances between the two, you know, groups, cultural groups. But culturally, if you're looking at what they had and what they had going on, they're very different. And that's, that's pretty cool. Okay. When we look at their grave sites, are they similar to other dynastic Chinese or is, are there uh, uh, grave goods uh, not similar at all? I would say that, um, well, we know for sure that they had boat-shaped tombs and coffins, which is totally different than yeah, what we see in the that. other groups. Yeah. Um, as far as like their burial practices, mm-hmm. I think that they were probably fairly similar. But, I mean, why would you make a boat-shaped tomb? That's, that's yeah. a lot of extra work. So I think we're talking about, this is my personal interpretation, I think we're talking about a group of people that were probably very um, advanced mariners. Mm-hmm. And the reason we don't see them is because they just moved somewhere else and possibly were assimilated, oh, yeah. um, went somewhere else where um, maybe not even in China. I, I, I'm making that up. I don't know if that's true, mm-hmm. but it just seems very strange to me that you wouldn't see this group, you know, come to the surface again, at least their techniques or mm-hmm. maybe some more um, boat shaped tombs or coffins, something like that. They're just gone. Yeah. All right. We're going to post this on the Facebook page, automatically populates to earthancients.com. And then you go to uh, Facebook feed and you'll see all this information if you're not into social media. You know, it's it's funny, Jen. It'd be really cool to see uh, this mask, this culture show up someplace else in the Americas. <laughs> be yeah, we should, we should keep our eyes open. Um, wouldn't that be something? Yeah. Amazing. Uh, All right. Uh, Any last thoughts as we uh, conclude? No, I think it's just a matter of, um, I mean, you know, I'm always looking for commonality or seeing where we have connections. Mm -hmm. I think if we start paying attention to these, these outliers or these things that don't make a lot of sense, maybe we will start making connections. Maybe, you know, this, uh, maybe the genetics for this particular group will pop up in a different population where we never expected it. So keep our eyes open. Yeah. Good thought. All right, Jen, good one. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. See you Cliff. The boys I've known and I've known some. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Coming to you live from around the world, it's Earth Ancient News. All right, we're heading to England to speak with our science editor, Bruce Fenton. And uh, Bruce, this is uh, this uh, article that we're discussing is quite Interesting for many reasons. I think the biggest one is that they are uh, able to detect the existence of an earlier universe, what they say, before the Big Bang, which created our current universe. So 
what do we know and what's the uh what is the detail yeah it's just really interesting one so this is um the sort of esteemed um you know scientist uh, roger penrose who a lot of people may know for his work on gravity and black mm-hmm. holes but he's just basically won a nobel prize for physics and so in part of his um you know his acceptance speech on this he, he's been saying that look, they are pretty certain that they have detected direct evidence for black holes that are remnants of a past universe mm-hmm. uh basically the way that they have found these is as well because they're warm spots you know areas of energy that are around eight times the diameter of the moon, which shouldn't have the kind of energy signature they have unless they were once a black hole. So in the, the only way that this makes sense is if these are from an earlier universe. Um, and so this kind of gives us this theory of a, a cyclical time, which I know you will be very familiar with as well from obviously looking into all kinds of ancient mysteries. This comes up again and again, the idea that the ancients talk about we're in some kind of, you know, cycle of time, like a spiral of time. Mm-hmm. Now, well, before we started, you mentioned that the technology that was used to detect remnants of this earlier universe. What was that? What was the system? <clears throat> well, I should say that the technology to observe. Started, is, yeah, I believe this has been done through sort of background microwave radiation. So they can find that there are areas that are giving off, uh, you know, microwave energy that they wouldn't expect um, normally to be there. The, you know, you expect a fairly constant in in the vacuum of space. So, mm-hmm. so what they've um, detected is these kind of you know, these areas are anomalous, basically. And so his his interpretation of them is that the only fit would be this um, this kind of model where you have these large black holes that gradually fade over time. So once this, you know, once we a universe kind of comes to its end that these some of these mega black holes will gradually diminish away but they somehow leave an energy signature that remains even when a new big bang occurs and a new universe forms that you'll get these still these remnants that are kind of fading away in the black background from these singularities um so it's kind of yeah it's kind of fascinating obviously it's still a bit controversial you know like with any Mm -hmm. Uh, major change in thinking because of course you know traditionally it was it was considered that the big bang was the absolute beginning of our universe and that there Mm. was nothing before that and obviously a lot of scientists still hold to that view um but the thing is here of course we have you know kind of you know top scientist good friend of um of hawkins and you know another leading academics kind of you know not somebody they can kind of dismiss as a crank right you know yeah he's pretty pretty um, telling us that now we yeah, exactly. And now he's telling us, look, you know, we're seeing what appears to be direct evidence of these past kind of supermassive black holes, um, like the one at the center of the Milky Way, which is in yeah. Andromeda, um, that these these last, you know, beyond the end of a universe in some sense, that it takes them longer to fade away than the rest of the matter as it pulls apart and fades, that these will leave this signature. And that, so, you know, he's really convinced that yeah, we are in a, a cycle of, creation and destruction and, huh. um i find that yeah i find that fascinating because it does it mesh is. with a lot of ancient wisdom even with the yeah the of hindu understanding you know of um the universe being born and, and dying and um every time i think it's the you know the divine opens its eyes you know a universe is born close them the universe dies there's a lot of you know mysticism that talks about that that we're in these cycles yeah. of of creation destruction 
spiraling time you know so yeah it looks like the science is catching up with the ancient um, mysticism let me ask you what uh do they expect to see when they go if we were to go through a black hole would there be another universe uh that we would enter because it's kind of a dimensional portal or is it is it not dimension it's just another uh doorway to uh well i guess it is dimensional because uh, you're going to another universe and 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 it's that the black hole is the doorway yeah they they do think actually that with some of the black holes particularly what they call the supermassive black holes and that's mm-hmm. like the one that we have at the center of the milky way in this andromeda region that mm-hmm. they now think that if these are large enough and they they spin slow enough that you actually could travel into them without being you know pulled apart and destroyed that those may well act as doorways Right, they may they may be a kind of natural doorway that you can go through and come out somewhere else. But I mean, obviously, we're not too sure. Would you come out somewhere else in our universe? You know, like in another, uh, like you know, connecting, say, to the Andromeda um, galaxy, or would you come out in an entirely different reality or another point in yeah. time? You know, yeah. so no one really thought. Do you think now that actually it is possible that something could survive going through a supermassive black hole? So that's kind of fascinating in itself. Yeah, it is. All right, we're going to post this on the Facebook page. There's a photograph there of the physicist who is the uh, Nobel uh, winner. and He is discussing the Big Bang and also this uh, new discovery. Also populates to earthancients.com. If you're not a uh, social media fan, look for Facebook feed. So... Okay, Bruce, final thoughts on this. Uh, why is this important? Well, I, 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 for me, it makes me wonder, you know, if black holes survived from a previous universe, could something else, you know, like consciousness, you know, which is not physical. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, which is energy. Really, yeah. energy can never be destroyed, only transformed. Could it be that some kinds of consciousness from a past universe have come through into this one? Mm. that we may have something here that is really ancient, you know, some consciousness, some kind of entities that are from that old universe, that they're, you know, unbelievably ancient yeah. and just in a form that we can no longer understand. It, that's what it left me wondering. Wow. That's, that's actually an interesting thought. All right, Bruce, really good. Uh, and we will talk to you next week. Have a good uh, weekend. Thank you very much. Take care. Brain fog, insomnia moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. There's a great deal of controversy on the age of modern man. It's known uh, technically, uh, we are known as Homo sapien sapiens. And there is evidence around the world of different sites, uh, some older than others, uh, of the remains of this hominin, our early ancestors. And I'm, I have uh, been awakened uh, by the work of uh, Dr. Mark Carlotto in his redating of sites. For me, my interest is the Maya, but uh, there's also a great deal of interest in uh, early hominins in Europe, in Asia, and of course, Africa, where a lot of people believe, or some of the early research uh, searchers believe, early man, man came from. But today, I want to focus on a specific site in Mexico that is confounding because there is evidence of a complete cover-up of the data. And we can't talk about ancient man without bringing in Michael Cremo, the author of uh, Forbidden Archaeology. And today, we're going to talk about a place called uh, Huey Laco, which is in uh, South East Mexico, north of Mexico City, uh, and the ramifications of this discovery uh, and the details. And so I want to welcome Michael Cremo back to the show. Michael, how are you? Pretty good, Cliff. I'm doing as well as I can you know, during uh, these travel restrictions and everything connected with the pandemic. But uh, Yeah, I wanted to see if you had a chance to get back to India this year, because I know you do a pilgrimage almost every year. Did you well, get a chance I, to head out before everything closed down? 
Well, I I did. I went in February. Perfect. I was fortunate enough to leave India before the uh, travel restrictions hit, and I you know, got back to my my base in Los Angeles, where I am now, and haven't mm-hmm. left since. <laughs> yeah, it's getting crazy. Now, you must be have become, since this uh, lockdown, you must have become an expert on uh, Zoom and uh, video conferencing, because <laughs> I can imagine people still want to talk to you like I do. Yeah, uh, we've been managing. Actually, this summer I was going to go to a meeting of the European Association of Archaeologists. Uh, it mm-hmm. was going to be held in Budapest, Hungary. But, uh, you know, they had to make it a virtual conference, which they'd never done before. And mm-hmm. so I attended in, in that way a whole academic conference. So it was kind of interesting to see how they're able to carry off things like that. So I think people are getting used to it, but it's not the same as being in person uh, with an audience. Is it? It's, it's quite different. Yeah. It's a different experience. Definitely. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, this site uh, again, as I mentioned, it was featured in your book uh, forbidden archeology. span um, Let's talk uh, specifically about the, the, the setup. The setup. Uh, the year that this is happening is 1962. Uh, the site is about 72, excuse me, 75 miles southeast of Mexico City, uh, near uh, Puebla, and uh, the principal archaeologist is Cynthia Irwin. Um, I think her last Williams. name Williams. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Um, what did she? What was she doing down there? First of all. Well, there's uh, a little backstory to that, and that involves the work of a Mexican researcher, Juan Armenta Camacho. Mm-hmm. He was a collector of fossils, and he was doing research around uh, the Valsequillo Reservoir, which is in that area that you're talking about near the town of Puebla in uh, Mexico. Mm -hmm. And he found a piece of elephant or mammoth or mastodon bone, a big piece of uh, mastodon bone with all kinds of engravings and carvings on it. And it turned out to be 20,000 years old or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, it became a sensation. Life magazine, which was a big uh, picture magazine at the time, published a picture of it on its cover. And uh, so archaeologists became interested because at that time in the 1960s, they thought the first people, the first humans that came into the Americas, North and South America, came 12,000 years ago or less. Mm -hmm. So, and they thought there was nobody before that. So to have this at 20,000 years was pretty amazing. So some uh, Cynthia Irwin Williams 
and some other American archaeologists connected with the Peabody Museum, uh, they went down there and they got permission from the Mexican government to conduct some excavations. Mm. So that's what, and Cynthia Irwin Williams was the archaeologist in charge of the project. So she wasn't in, she wasn't associated with any university. She was with, well, I guess Peabody Museum is part of what Harvard. Yeah. Okay. So I guess Harvard Harvard funded it. Yeah, there was funding. There was definitely it definitely had to be funded mm-hmm. by university, and she started her excavations there, and at. You could say the the overall name for the area of the excavations was on the shore of what's now a reservoir. Hmm. You know, some dam had been built on some little river, and a reservoir had uh, come. So the the sites were on the northern side of this Valsequio reservoir, and they're kind of close together. There was Laco, which is you mentioned. There was El Horno, and there was a place called Chalapan. Mm-hmm. So in all of these places, all three of these sites, the team led by Cynthia Irwin Williams uncovered human artifacts, you know, stone tools of various levels of sophistication, but including uh, projectile points, you know, like spearheads or arrowheads, something that archaeologists would normally attribute to humans like us. They didn't think uh, any type of other hominin like Neanderthal or Homo erectus would make these kinds of things. So there were, she needed some dating. So she brought in a team of geologists. They were part of her team. And they did some radiocarbon dating, carbon-14 dating, of pieces of shell that were found in the same layers as the uh, uh, layers as the stone tools and weapons. And they got dates ranging between 22 and 40,000 years at this Chalapan site. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they were acceptable dates. So they, uh, she started circulating this information around the, the, the scientific world and there was resistance to it. Uh, as I said, resistance yeah. to 20,000 years. Yes. Okay. The, at that time in 1962, they had thought 12,000 years. Oh, the, so it was a few years lo- uh, uh, older than the, the given or the acceptable date. Yeah. And even that was controversial. Wow. Uh, yeah. But then they found, uh, they decided to do some more testing. Uh, there was uh, a newly developed method called the uranium series method, 
it's based on because you know, the radiocarbon method only works back to about 50,000 or right. 100,000 years. Yeah. But still, they wanted to try another method to see if they could confirm these radiocarbon dates from this Chalopan site. So they did that, and, uh, <clears throat> and they started to circulate information that, you know, they hadn't finished their complete report but they would talk about this with other archaeologists and scientists and, Mm -hmm. and they were starting to get some agreement for that. But then, uh, uh, then they applied the same method to the other sites, Laco and El Horno. And they got dates of between 250,000 and 300,000 years for the layers with stone tools in them. Okay, let me just stop you right there. Is that before Virginia Steen McIntyre shows up? Uh, yeah, or, yes. Okay, so, okay, go ahead. I understand. No, go ahead. No, I, 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 oh, is that it? Okay. Uh, I, so I have a no, question. No, 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 there is more. I, oh, I just didn't want to cut you off. Oh, no, no. I just wanted to insert because, because uh, uh, Virginia, in many ways, is the uh, spokesperson for this site after she began her research, but I want to go ahead and and listen to the prelude leading up to her entrance into the scene. Right. I think she is absolutely the key person. Right. Okay. So then, uh, of course, you know, Cynthia Irwin Williams just said, well, that can't possibly be true, you know? Mm -hmm. And then what happened is there was, uh, a Mexican archaeologist connected with the, the government archaeological department. Mm. And he took over the site. And he said, uh, all of those tools found by, because he couldn't accept, you know, this 40,000 year date. And like I said, they they had, uh, radiocarbon dates going from 22,000 to 40,000 years. Mm. And so they they kind of use the 40,000 years as the maximum, 22,000 as the minimum, but he couldn't even accept that. Mm. So he said all those artifacts were planted in the uh, excavations by the Mexican people they had working on, on the excavation, doing different things. And so he, he, he took control of the, the site. Why would he, um, uh, was he being pressured to, to uh, shut the site down and uh, 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 collect these uh, artifacts that had been dated? Um, there are some suggestions like that. I, I would recommend anyone who's really interested in all the details of this case, look at a book by Christopher Hardiker, who was an archaeologist. It's called The First American. 
and he gets into the details of this case. Okay. And uh, the see one thing they had was Cynthia Irwin Williams had taken out a a uh, section of the uh, excavation. In other words, starting from the top layer down to the layers at the bottom where the stone tools were found, Mm -hmm. she took out a column of the layers of rock and hardened sediment, like a whole column Mm. with a stone tool embedded in the uh, layer. In the strata. strata. As proof, you know, because... Yeah, because you could say, like, you can always get, well, there must have been this or that or, you know, fakes or... So just to guard against that, she had taken out, you know, like these, this column Mm. of the excavation with a stone tool in the layers of rock without taking it out. And that was confiscated. All the tools were confiscated. Now, they had photographs of them, the Huayatlico artifacts. Uh, Fortunately, that, you know, she had kept brought back to the States with her. but, uh, uh, But all the original tools were confiscated. Okay, and I don't think they've been relocated to this very day. So, for some reason or other, uh, this uh, Jose Lorenzo, uh, Doctor Jose Lorenzo, with this the, the Mexican government uh, archaeology department, he, uh, as I said, took over the site. Said. Everything that was found here was uh, so. The geologist they were they wanted to do more work. So, is this when Virginia gets involved? Yes. Okay. So, she's with the United States Geological Survey. Uh, you know, an official body of the American government. How did she get? brought down to uh, this this location? Well, she was getting also getting her, finishing her PhD, her doctoral thesis. Right. And I, you know, some of the uh, geologists who were involved in this site were like Barney Sabo mm-hmm. and uh, I'm trying to think who else was there. Uh, so she knew them from uh, her work, and uh, you know, as a student, you know, as a graduate student, you know, working on a new method of uh, dating volcanic materials. It's called tephrahydration. Mm-hmm. Uh, tephra means volcanic materials, and they. If you look at them under a microscope, they're crystals, and these crystals absorb water. 
Okay. And like they have like a, a little vacuole and then a little round space inside that the water accumulates in. And if you uh, measure the amount of water that's accumulated, it gives you some idea of the age of the volcanic crystal. So many of the uh, stone tools at Hoyatlaco had been, been found in uh, deposits underneath layers of volcanic ash. So her method of dating would be another confirmation. You, you, you know, the, the geologists were trying to get as many types of analysis into it, you know, to show, okay, well, you don't like this method? Well, we've got three methods. Yeah, I, I wanted to talk about that because not only did they use radiocarbon dating, they used uranium dating, volcanic ash, uh, pumice dating, and then a, right. a zircon fusion track dating, which I've never heard of, but it was actually in its infancy in the 60s. Right. And it's very accurate, apparently, uh, with the sediment. Yeah. So what happened was is uh, the geologists who were doing the initial work with Cynthia Irwin Williams mm-hmm. knew of Virginia Steen McIntyre and her work. You know, they had some connection somehow. So she was made part of the team as mm-hmm. well. And <clears throat> like you said to me in the beginning, the ideal thing would be to have Virginia herself tell this story. But uh, they got permission from Lorenzo, Dr. Lorenzo, who was in control of the site. Because now Cynthia Irwin Williams is out of the picture. And he, they got in touch with him, said, we, we just... Want, we're just interested in the geology. <clears throat> we're just interested in uh, the, <laughs> the age yeah, of the, the geology. Yeah, and he said, "Okay, you come. To, you can come. I'll let you do your geological work, but no Cynthia Irwin Williams. She is not to be allowed." Hmm. Uh, I said, "No, we're just geologists." We're just going to do the geology. So uh, they went there, and as you said, they applied this uh, these new methods: fission track, uranium fission track dating, which is based on the idea that you know uranium is a radioactive element that decays, which means if you've got uranium in a crystal and it decays in the sense of you know, the radioactivity is actually a, a particle mm-hmm. you know, you know, that breaks off from the uranium atom, you know, shoots out these little particles, and they leave tracks in the crystal. <clears throat> and by counting them up, you can get some idea of how long the crystal has been around and therefore how old the uh, strata is. So... Applying all these new methods, they uh, got an age of between 250,000 years and 300,000 years. Yeah, and plus plus or minus 60,000 years is what I got. 
when yeah. they did that. Uh, and that, that was, that wasn't what, that was about two, three years later, uh, 64, 69. I can't remember. Yeah. Around, around that. I, I, okay. I'd have to refer to, you know, some yeah. books or something to get the exact dates. Right. But yeah. We're, we're talking about that period. And, and before, before we go on, uh, uh, Michael, Again, the general consensus at that time was that modern Homo sapiens sapien had arrived through the Bering Strait approximately 12,000 years, right? And they thought Homo sapiens first came into existence anywhere in the world 40,000 years ago. 40,000, but through a number of uh, migrations, the Americas, and this was all supposition, it was all guesswork, that uh, they had arrived in North America proper 10, 12,000 years. Yeah. Okay. They call it the Clovis people because they had a particular type of uh, projectile point. Before we go on, I also want to ask you something that came up in the research that I did. Virginia McIntyre considers or uh, identifies the site Huilaco as a kill site. And when when we refer to a kill site, this is where animals are butchered and the meat is extracted. And in some cases, the uh, marrow, the bones are cracked to extract the marrow. We know about this because mm-hmm. there's a similar site in San Diego where they dated it to 130,000 years uh, in mm-hmm. the past. And it has seems that... And, Clear, uh, clarify this if I'm uh, if I'm wrong or not. It's it's a it's a site that uh, tools are discovered. I don't remember it being a Homo sapiens sapien, but they guess that it's that the same way, the same type of hominin, because of the type of tools that are discovered there. Right. That is how they tend to operate. I'm not going to say I agree w- w- with how they operate, but that, yeah. that's the kind of reasoning they uh, employ. Yeah, okay. there was uh, yeah the San Diego discoveries. Um, uh, the original date they got for those was 300,000 years. Oh, my God. Now, that's <laughs> news to me. They probably well, had to dial that down. Well, I found out about that case from Virginia Steen McIntyre. Oh my God! It was it was uh, an investigation that was done in connection with highway construction. Right. The, there are now laws in most countries that whenever any civil engineering or construction project is taken on, they have to do an archaeological and paleontological survey to make sure they're not destroying any valuable sites or mm-hmm. evidence. You know, so so as part of that, you know, some paleontologists from San Diego Museum of Man, I think it's called, mm-hmm. and they did some investigations. And they, what they found were, were uh, a partial skeleton of a mammoth or mastodon, mm-hmm. and it had evidence of butchering and 
and they dated some of the bone, and they the initial date they got was three hundred thousand years. I never this heard was, that. That's this fabulous. Was published. Yeah. This was uh, published. You have to see the original publication. Wasn't it? Didn't Nature publish that the findings? I mean, a really well, prestigious well, later, later. Oh, later, later. The okay. Original publication done by uh, the principal investigators. Uh, uh, it was published not in a scientific journal. Like I said, this was part of a, a government uh, mm-hmm. mandated. Uh, environmental impact okay. thing that's required, you know. So a lot of that never goes into academic journals. Mm-hmm. It, 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 it it's just exists as reports in the California Department of Transportation, you know, somewhere. And so somehow or other, Virginia Steen McIntyre got word of it she got a hold of the original report and she sent it to me and i wrote about it in uh, atlantis rising magazine oh okay that was probably the first publication about it that reached the public otherwise so the archaeologists and the paleontologists were kind of sitting on this for a few years, because I think it was 1997 or somewhere around that, that the original report reporting this whole thing was done for the, I think it's the California Department of Transportation and Highways or whatever. So it was just a, a government mandated report that was filed away. And the, uh, the paleontologists and different archaeologists that found out about it were thinking, what are we going to do with this? You know, it's like, uh, maybe, so eventually after years of discussion among themselves, they thought, I mean, some, some other new persons were made aware of it Mm -hmm. and they decided, okay, I think we can go with a you know, they did some new dating. They got an age of 130,000 years. And they said, okay, I think we can go with this. And they published a, an article in Nature uh, okay. about this. So um, the uh, <clears throat> that's and, and that was kind of earth-shaking, I would say. Well, did, did, did even Nature uh, uh, published, what, 130,000 years ago? Because 300,000, would have that would have been surprising that they would they would publish something like that. But 100 and, even 130 is pretty significant. Well, considering that now the, the sort of the mainstream consensus among the, you know, among the, archaeologists that deal with the Americas, I think they, the oldest age they're prepared to accept is somewhere around 30,000 years for wow. first entry. So 130 or 13, I think it maybe it was. Okay. 113,000 years. Let, let's head back to uh, uh, Hilaco. Uh, Mexico, and I discovered that in 1981, 
Uh, the Journal of Quartarian Research published McIntyre's, uh, with two other geologists, uh, paper validating the date of 250,000 uh, years before present. Uh, and that is a geological paper or a publication or journal, which, research, which seems to be easier on people than archaeologists. Uh, uh, we have the same situation when uh, Robert uh, uh, Schock dates uh, and, and reviews the uh, Sphinx enclosure in Egypt, which is thought to be six, 7,000 years. He dates it to 10 to 12,000. So here we are, another geologist team is dating the uh, strata and showing this evidence. So what what happens once this journal <laughs> comes out, Michael? Yeah, yeah, that that was a whole interesting story because what happened was, and there's a little bit of a backstory to that, is that <clears throat> um, after. Uh, the the geologists, including Virginia Steen McIntyre, went down and confirmed the dating of 250,000 to 300,000 years for the Wyatlico site. They started uh, negotiating with uh, Cynthia Irwin Williams, and and you know she said, "Well, I I can't publish." anything like that. You know, she still hadn't published anything about uh, the site, hmm. you know, the Valsakio sites, including Huayatlico. And they, the geologist kind of told her, well, you know, we really can't wait. And they said, okay, not just uh, um Cynthia Irwin Williams, but other archaeologists in America, very big, influential archaeologists, Mary Marie Worthings, I think Worthington Smith or Smith Worthington. She was so they all kind of got together and they said, "Okay, uh, publish it, but don't publish it in any." publication that the archaeologists will read. Oh, interesting. Because so is it purely geo geological? Uh, what, what will happen is when they see that, they, the, they won't accept anything about the site, hmm. you know, that it's twenty to 40,000 years. That would have been nice for Cynthia Irwin Williams. It's kind of like expanding the boundary, but in a way that was difficult, but that was still acceptable and would have made her look good. So I need, I need to stop right here because I need for you to help us understand uh, me and the listeners, uh, not being a archeologist, not being a geologist. Why are they not receptive to the possibilities of modern man uh, uh, arriving at this time, uh, and the only thing, the only answer I can give is that they don't want to rewrite history, and there's other possible religious ramifications that we're not familiar with. But what, in your own words, Michael, would be a reason for not accepting 
scientific evidence of stone tools, carving tools, mastodon, animal uh, remains uh, as a date of 250,000 years in the past? Um, <clears throat> there were a couple of reasons at the time, and they stated them. Yeah, I, I, as I said, I would really recommend people have a look at the book, The First American by Christopher Hardiker, who's unfortunately no longer with us. But, you know, he, he had uh, really looked into the whole thing. He'd spoken with Virginia Steen McIntyre about it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And you know, he, he produced what I regard as a very good book. He got all the correspondence that was exchanged among these people. And you can get a really good picture of why they did it. Okay. Uh, and the reason is, I mean, basically I call it knowledge filtration. I was just going to use that term knowledge filtration. We did, we, we can't accept it because it doesn't fit within our paradigm. It doesn't fit with, you know, it's something that philosophers of science, you know, like Kuhn, you know, he's the one who popularized this uh, term and, and the way we use it today. Uh, you know, in his book, uh, The Structure of Scientific uh, Revolutions. So, but basically it just means people see what they're accustomed to see. Mm-hmm. You know, they, and if something doesn't, fit you know the paradigm they become they don't want to become identified with it it's uh uh so the a whole suite of reasons you know like they would have because science is is a social process you're with others you kind of learn what's acceptable what's not acceptable you know, if you kind of stray a little bit, you know, some colleagues say, oh, don't look into that. That's that's not going to get you anywhere. You know, it's, so it, it, it it's a social process. And I think you identified you know, some of the key aspects of it, but they say it in their own words. No, I mean, yes, you've gotten these dates, but, you know, these are new methods. They're experimental. You could be wrong, you know. And, and why say this? Because then uh, no archaeologist will take this seriously at all. And, yeah. You know, so, so they were negotiating behind the scenes. And to, adjust, to adjust the dates, you mean? No, to adjust where they would publish. Oh, where they would publish. Okay. Okay, because they're saying, okay, they're scientists. Okay, we're archaeologists. You're a geologist. Mm -hmm. You've got your science. We have ours. I hear you. We're just saying, this is more or less how they presented it. We're just saying, I'm kind of paraphrasing, you know, what we would like you to do is yes, publish it, but don't publish it in a 
big journal that goes out to everybody, like Science or Nature. <laughs> yeah, where it goes out to everybody, and yeah, the archaeologists see it. Everybody sees it. Just publish it in some little geology journal that'll only reach geologists mm-hmm. and 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 we would also ask that you include in that article for the geologist a statement by Cynthia Irwin Williams that she doesn't accept those dates. Hmm. <laughs> so they more or less agreed to do that. that okay. Do that. But then what happened was mm-hmm. some of the geologists died, retired. So it was kind of Virginia, it was Steen McIntyre, uh, was the one who was still actively pushing it. And she was the lead author of the article, the paper, on on the dating of the Huayatlico Vasakio Reservoir sites that got published in the journal, I think it was called Quaternary Research. Right. So so it was published. And then they thought, okay, now what's going to happen? Uh, what should have happened was it should have been a sort of spark, kind of a, a, a revolution in North American archaeology, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it didn't happen like that. It kind of just lay dormant. Then around, and, and th- th- this would be the early 1970s when this okay. happened. Okay, it finally got published. They published their geological dating. Nothing happened. You know, just silence. So the geological community, other geologists were like, it's no big deal because we work in the millions of years or what? They just... Well, the, the, the other geologists, uh, it, like it was a publication. It was just meant for... Yeah, it, it was a pretty restricted audience. Okay. And, you know, geologists are working on other things, Mm -hmm. not human origins. You know, scientists specialize, even within geology. You know, they're geological specialists who specialize. Some are petroleum geologists. Some are doing another type of geology. They're mountain building you know, or orogeny, they call it. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they're all kinds of different specialists. So, uh, and it's not up to them to decide. It's not up to geologists to decide how long a human's been in the Americas. That's for the anthropologists and archaeologists to deal with. So, then what happened was... In the 1980s, middle to late 1980s, 
when we were doing the research and writing of forbidden archaeology, we came upon this. <laughs> so we got in touch with Virginia Steen McIntyre, and she supplied you know, some information mm-hmm. you know, for, for us to use. And then that book became... You know, I, you know, I was put in touch with a, a, a film producer in New York named Bill Cote, and you know, he was working on uh, a documentary for NBC. So, you know, I told him about Virginia Steen McIntyre. He had the book Forbidden Archaeology because I sent it to him, and. You know, he, he said, I think we can use some of this material in this documentary. And what cases do you recommend that I focus on? One of the cases, I said, is the case of Virginia Steen McIntyre, who was involved in dating this archaeological site in Mexico. And, you know, she was part of a whole team of geologists who dated the site, and they refused to publish their age for the site. And that was this TV special with Heston called The Mysteri- uh, Mysterious Origins of Man. Right? That's correct. Yeah. I think it aired in 1996. Exactly. But, uh, uh, but it, it kind of raised her profile because Bill Cote took her down to the site. Oh, and, boy. Filmed, it was really amazing. You know, filmed her. Yeah, you know, yes, we did this and that. And we dated this, and you know, I mean, it was really amazing. Did the scientific community react to that uh, TV series? Yes, very negatively. <laughs> I bet they did, because she's probably uh, spouting out two hundred fifty thousand years before present, sure. and uh, they're hearing it on their TVs. They're outraged. Oh, there was a lot of other stuff in the uh, in the documentary as well. I mean, yeah. I was in it. My co-author Richard Thompson was in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there was a. But somehow, after that came out, uh, and I, I would say, at least partially because of my influence. Mm-hmm. There was uh, uh, a man named Marshall Payne, who is kind of a philanthropist, interested in archaeological topics in particular. So kind of behind the scenes, uh, George Carter, who was uh, an archaeologist who made some discoveries in the San Diego area as well, uh, showing that humans had been present there for about 100,000 years. Hmm. He he was now at, I think, Texas A&M University or someplace. I was corresponding with him. I sent him a copy of Forbidden Archaeology, and we kind of talked about the Huayatlico site. This was before this TV documentary. Mm. And then 
in one of my letters that I wrote to Virginia Steen McIntyre, I told her, you know, I was exchanging some letters with George Carter. And, you know, he said, you've uh, probably missed uh, what he calls like an inset where like, you know, thousands of years ago, there was a, a level surface and maybe there was a flood and a kind of rushing river cut a little uh, inset into the strata at Huayatlaco and some stone tools fell from the higher, more recent levels down into that inset, that little oh, and it was covered over with sediments like that. So she said, she wrote back to me and she said, well, you know, I, I would like to tell them, you know, you know, that, yeah, we considered that. We looked at that and we ruled it out, you know, and, and, she, and, and then she said, you know, there's some conference going on in some Western state. And I, I see that George Carter is going to be there. So I'm going to go there. I'm going to get in touch with him. I'm going to meet him there. I'm going to give him some of the original maps and drawings and documents you know, that she had mm-hmm. kind of put together. And then George Carter, uh, after all the publicity about, uh, you know, from the documentary, you know, The Mysterious Origins of Man, got in touch with this Marshall Payne and said, I, I think it would be very valuable if you were to look into this Wyatlico site. So he put together a, a team of uh, archaeologists, geologists, and others to go down there and reopen the site and conduct new excavations. So Virginia was part of that team. Mm. There's even some very prominent uh, archaeologists like Mike Waters. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What did they come up with when they went back down there? Did they use the same testing, the uranium and zircon fusion tracking? Well, there was even another method. And this has to do with another scientist that I'd met. His name was Sam Van Landingham. And he's an expert in diatoms. He's no longer living. He died a couple of years ago. Oh, he's a, the bio-stratigraphic uh, uh, researcher, right? Yeah. I think I heard of him. Now, diatoms are little microscopic creatures, one-celled creatures that have a hard silicate kind of cell wall. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you look at them, they kind of look like snowflakes you know, under a microscope. They all have different shapes. And so different diatoms are characteristic of different geological periods. So he went, he was made part of that team. I put him in touch with Virginia, who uh, put him in touch with Marshall Payne, and he was made part of the team. And he went down there. And his research was consistent with what Virginia Steen McIntyre and her team had originally found. I mean, Sam Van Lanningham, somehow or other, he'd gotten a copy of Forbidden Archaeology, and he wrote to me, and I said, I said, you know, there's this new research going on at this Wyalico site. Maybe you'd be interested in doing that. If you are, I'll put you in touch with Virginia Steen McIntyre. So he went down there. So that was an entirely new method. But it, Marshall, in the end, couldn't get everybody on the same page. You know, I think Mike Waters and others were still going with this inset idea. Uh, oh, of the uh, of the uh, uh, later period falling to the old period. Yeah. Okay. See, Marshall's team. He he got new dating for the materials, and they kind of the, the dating was consistent with the original dating done by Virginia Steen McIntyre and her colleagues. And, you know, to him, it all added up to, uh, it all added up to confirming what Virginia Steen McIntyre had always said about it. I wanted to ask you, uh, Sam Van Landingham, what dates did he come back with, with his, uh, his new equipment, his new well, dating technique. Well, his his technique, as I said, he was a, looking at the diatoms, which means looking in a microscope at the kinds of diatoms mm-hmm. that are found. And he found, I mean, 
you know, the, you know, the modern type of diatom is one looks one way, you know, I see the, the ones from, uh, other, uh, epics. Yeah. epics. And yeah. he, he generally expresses things in terms of North American glacial epics. Hmm. You know, this glaciation, the Wisconsin glaciation, the mm-hmm. Wisconsin interglacial period. So he, he, he found that the kinds of diatoms that were found in the, in, that he took from samples that come from the stone uh, tool layers, the artifact layers at Huayatlico, are the kind that you would expect to find in strata of the age that Virginia Steen McIntyre said. So it's when you're looking at these things, it's sort of a, a combination of of just looking at the stratigraphy, seeing if it's intact, seeing if there was an inset or or not, uh, or and then combined with the dating, uranium series, zircon fission track, tephrahydration, add the diatom studies now, and the, the whole thing sort of adds up to confirming what you know Virginia Steen McIntyre originally said about it. So it sounds like it really made the archaeological, anthropological community uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to read about this, to get the evidence. And then on top of it, here's this, the mysterious origins of man with, with, uh, with at the time a a, a featured uh, narrator in Charlton Heston, who really probably uh, had a huge (laughs) audience watching this uh, to, to, to drive the whole idea home with the American public. So, uh, it, it must have really upset the community pretty severely. Yeah. Um, so I think Virginia Steen McIntyre was willing to talk to anyone who would listen to her. Mm-hmm. And I listened to her. And I wrote about her. I think I was at least partially instrumental in getting her onto that television special that really, you know, it just really brought the case back alive. Yeah. And new work was started there that confirmed it. Mm-hmm. But there's still tremendous resistance to this before we get into uh what became of uh, virginia uh steve mcintyre i want to talk about the dark side of archaeology and you can highlight what i'm about to mention uh i have read that eyewitness uh accounts of federales uh, intimidating workers with guns uh, and to get them to sign confessions that the artifacts were planted happened in Mexico. Uh, I also discovered that uh, the site 
where the original artifacts were were found was closed down. And according to one document, many, if not most of the artifacts were lost or, or uh, hidden. Uh, so this, and to this day, I, unless you can say otherwise, those sites are uh, not are restricted and not, and no one's allowed to go there. Uh, that's a, a fact. I mean, what you know apparently happened is some landowner, you know, had control of that land and it wound up in somebody's hand who built a house and put up. <sighs> You know, it's put up some walls, you know, like around it. And, mm. you know, so, uh, I mean, this also happened at other sites. You know, that now you can say, was that done deliberately to put this case, bury it, you know, yeah, <laughs> so that no further trouble can come from it. Uh, you could say that, but but as far as the artifacts were concerned, they definitely were confiscated by uh, the Mexican government. Not the whole government, but you know the part that dealt with the archaeological permissions and things like that. Um, and it is a fact that the uh, artifacts that were found there don't really exist anymore. Oh my God! And, yeah. and the and I guess the uh, the original person who started it all, you know, Juan Armenta Camacho, this collector of fossil evidence, all of his things, I think, were confiscated as well. So, um, yeah, these things, these kind of things can happen, sure. Yeah, it's amazing. And, uh, of course, the the fallout lands on uh, Virginia, Steve McIntyre, directly, she was not able to ever get another job uh, in her field and uh, try as best she can to continue the story to get the word out. Uh, it looks like, other than your work and perhaps a journal or two, uh, it was suppressed. I would definitely say that, yes. Um, then... Another thing that she did is she joined together with some other, you could say, maverick uh, types of researchers, scientists, to form something called the Pleistocene Coalition. And, you know, they publish a, a news, news, uh, news bulletin every month. Yeah, you know, it's about 40 pages or 20 pages, something like that. You know, like a, like a, a news 
news release type thing with all kinds of articles in it by researchers who are kind of pushing the boundaries, but in a very scientific way. In other words, it's not something like a, a tabloid or a, I mean, it, it's done by researchers who are very, very careful and they're trying to keep alive this picture of extreme human antiquity in the Americas, North America in particular, Pleistocene Coalition. Wow. She was a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she's still contributing to it. You know, you know She's one of the editors of it. Um, But I mean, she, uh, your your book is filled. Uh, Forbidden archaeology is filled with these kinds of uh, uh, events uh, throughout the world. Yeah. And if we are at this kind of stalemate of uh, uh, editing history because it it doesn't correspond to the given thought, in many ways. Uh, where does the progress come in? Uh, are we are we left to to, to identifying pot shards, and uh, uh, only when something like uh, uh, an overwhelming evidence uh, like Gobekli Tepe shows up, where there's uh, uh, stonework and there is uh, uh, erect carvings. Uh, that identify a people that is, you know, and of course that's dated 12,000 BC, which shook everybody up, but that seems still to be uh, a valid place where here is 250,000 years ago in America. It's just too much for, for the scientific community to accept. And I, I don't even want to call archeologists scientists. I, I think the geologists, are more likely to be more accepting. And I gave one example at the very beginning with uh, Dr. Robert Schock from Boston University identifying the strata and the weathering of the Sphinx enclosure. Uh, and then along with John Anthony West going up against the archaeological community of Zahi Hawass, Mark Lerner, and others to set back the date of the Sphinx prior to dynastic Egypt, uh, that's still in question. So, I mean, (laughs) I know you don't have a simple answer for this, but uh, after writing this book, of course, Forbidden Archaeology, it must be, what, 25 years ago that you, I mean, you've updated a couple of times. Yeah, well, what I'm doing now is I'm writing a book I call Extreme Human Antiquity. Oh, okay. In which I include all of the cases that have come to my attention, and there are many of them Mm -hmm. since that book was published. And plus, I'll I'll include in this new book any updates that I might have about some of the cases that I mentioned in the original book. So, you know, I'm hoping to have that. I've completed the manuscript for it. And I'm hoping it'll be out sometime in this coming year, 2021. 
Oh, excellent. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm looking on my shelf here. I have you have human de-evolution, and then my science, uh, my religion. Yeah, that's a collection of 24 papers that I've presented on these topics right. at meetings of professional archaeologists, members of the European Association of Archaeologists, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, World Archaeological Congress. Actually, I brought Virginia in, in 2003, I was chair, co-chair of a session on history of archaeology for the uh, World Archaeological Congress. Mm-hmm. And I brought uh, Virginia Steen McIntyre and Sam Van Landingham to, uh, to Washington for that. Oh, Probably. they were actually there in person. Yeah, they came in person. Wow. Now, it I, I have to say, I mean, sometimes uh, Virginia called it the, the the conference from hell, you know, because it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, not an easy thing to go through. But, uh, but in my lectures at universities and in my interviews that I give for radio and television and my... Uh, presentations that I make at professional gatherings of archaeologists, I almost always bring up her and the Hoyatlico case. Well, that's interesting that you would say that. Is there any openness to to this date or this discovery? Because if anything, it's going to continue. I mean, we have the San Diego case of the Mastodon kill site uh that was very that was that put a whole community the whole community in an uproar uh but i mean what what is it just that they become so plentiful that there has to be a form of acceptance by the archaeological community before uh i mean or, or what what would you if you were to if you were to look into the future what would you say uh the uh the uh change in attitude is, or when does it come? Um, You know, it's uh, difficult, but, you know, there are some archaeologists who are willing to consider these things. Mm -hmm. There are some, but uh, just in general, the world of science, including archaeology, seems to be taking little steps in the right direction. I think they've got a long, long, long way to go. And, you know, it, it, it would be good, I'm just speaking personally, yeah. to, to live in a time and place when the convictions that one personally has, when the things one accepts is true were these things were shared by the elites and and influential persons of the time and place one finds oneself in but sometimes i guess we don't have that luxury yeah you have to uh 
And then it just becomes a question of, well, are you going to conform and just put your personal convictions and aside? Uh, so, yeah, difficult decisions to make sometimes. <laughs> Michael Cremo, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program. Um, I would like to end with this last point because you do study the Vedas and uh, you do travel to India uh, and you uh, are part of an ashram there. Yes. When we look at the yugas, and I'm thinking of the yugas by Sri Yukishwar, he talks about the different ages, and it seems like we're stuck <laughs> right now coming out of uh, this this uh, almost a dark period. Uh, as, as a philosopher on that side of things, uh, wouldn't a revelation kind of be a breakthrough for a new age? Or do we have to just consider it we're still somewhat in the dark, dark ages of, of intellectual uh, curiosity, especially uh, radical, uh, but not so radical because we're, we're, we're talking about scientific evidence in the form of uh, scientific testing uh, validating these these uh, ideas and theories, but are, are are we are we coming back into some light? Eventually, of course. Uh, yeah, I, as you mentioned, I'm you know a practitioner of you know, a system of yoga. It's called Bhakti Yoga, the Yoga of Devotion. I was a disciple of Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, as part of that practice, you know, I, I have looked at the historical writings of ancient India, the Puranas, the Vedas, the cosmological writings, and things of that sort. And they do involve a concept of cyclical time, and that cyclical time has units. You mentioned yugas. Uh, According to the traditional understanding, they're very long periods. There's an initial age, a golden age called the Satya Yuga. It lasts for 1,728,000 years. Uh, there's a, a, a second one, uh, the uh, Treta Yuga. 1,296, excuse me, 1,296,000 thousand years, uh, Dwapara Yuga, 864,000 years, things are getting progressively darker, and then there's the Kali Yuga, uh, the age that we're in now, which lasts 432,000 years, and it started roughly 5,000 years ago, according to the traditional understanding. Hmm. Uh, So it's kind of predicted to be an age of increasing environmental and social disturbance. And it appears to be going in that direction. Mm -hmm. But uh, according to the particular school of thought that I, I uh, follow that there's a period right here at the beginning of the Kali Yuga 
where things are going to go up for a little while. Mm-hmm. And it's just like when winter is coming. Now winter's coming. It's October, there'll be November, December, January. It's going to get colder and colder and colder in the northern hemisphere anyways. And But even so, there may be some few warm days, although the trend is generally downward. So in terms of the kind of thing that you're talking about, I would say, yes, there is an opportunity now. Let's take it. Let's try to push these things forward. Uh, when you say opportunity, you mean a, like a little uh, hint of enlightenment? Yeah. Okay. A little hint of enlightenment before things get, you think <laughs> things are crazy now. Uh-oh. <laughs> you well, think it, are crazy now with the pandemic and the politics and the environmental destruction and everything. Hmm. I think we haven't seen anything yet. Wow. I don't know if I want to be around to see it, but yeah, that's scary. (laughs) Michael, thank you for your time. Uh, For those of you listening who want to know more about Michael Cremo, he does have a a real basic website. I think it's uh, Mike. Is it mcremo.com? Yeah. Yeah. mcremo.com. The good thing about that is he does have an event a link where you can hear him speak live. Of course, this year, those live events are being relegated to the technology within video, Zoom, and other technological uh, streaming media. But he does list uh, upcoming events. and uh, God, including, I- Zoom, including Zoom events. And- yeah. If they're open to the public, they'll be announced as well. I, I just checked it. It's fairly updated and, and well well designed. So, uh, all right, Michael, thank you very much. Thanks for letting us know about this upcoming book. That's exciting. And uh, it's going to be published 2021. That's, that's even more exciting. So we'll definitely have you back uh, for your annual uh, highlights of the world of Man and antiquity, fantastic. All right, yeah. thank you. If if I could add just oh, please. one Go more ahead. thing, uh, you know, you'd mentioned the book "My Science, My Religion," so mm-hmm. we had a special offer for that for anyone who purchases that book from my website, you know, the "My Science, My Religion" book, the collection of conference science conference papers for those who are kind of into that sort of thing. They'll also have the opportunity to copy of Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the texts that inspire me and my work. All right, Michael, all the best to you and uh, stay in touch. And I'll look forward to checking in with you and your assistant on this upcoming book. Okay, Cliff. Great to be with you. You got to think about this. This is uh, it's it's depressing. We're looking at uh, systemic cover-ups, uh, stories, data is being changed, information being suppressed, and this is our current history. Our current history is uh, is uh, filled with flaws and errors. It is filled with probably a good deal of bad information as well, and. Uh, the current people who are dictating this information, we receive uh, 
are not open to new data. And this has been, pro- I, I, I really think this has been going on for hundreds of years. And it's gotten worse as the academics are strangling uh, any new data. So, and the other thing that I find interesting is uh, programs like Ancient Aliens, uh, Unexplained, and other History Channel programs are extremely and wildly popular because they give us an alternative to what we are fed by the historians. And I think that intuitively a lot of people realize that our history is wrong. But isn't it sad uh, that this this these cover-ups uh, are perpetuated? And this is the beauty of forbidden archaeology is this, uh, you know, chronicling uh, archaeological discoveries, geological discoveries uh, that don't fit our current paradigm. They're not allowed to be expressed. And so they are hidden, repressed, and discarded. So just, just mind-blowing. Just, just terrible, 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 terrible. Ah, I don't know what to say. It's, it's depressing. It's really depressing. So programs like Earth Ancients will continue to give it to you <laughs> for you to decide what's, what's true, what's not. And, uh, you know, I, I do uh, work to, to present people who are scholarly in their research, in their presentations. Occasionally, we go off to the left field uh, and dive into some, you know, controversial topics. But I'd say 90% of what we have here in Earth Ancients is, is fairly solid. So there you go. Hey, if you're enjoying Earth Ancients, please consider becoming a subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you support the work we do here on Earth Ancients. And I'll tell you, 2020 has been tough. Uh, We've recently uh, brought on a new intern, but we've had most of the year uh, without support. And uh, it's really caused a a real challenging time for us. So when you support Earth Ancients and you can give five, ten, twenty dollars per month, you keep the lights on, you keep the uh, machine greased <laughs> and oiled and uh, well and working well. So to become a subscriber, go to Patreon. That's p a t r e o n dot com forward slash Earth Ancients and uh, become a subscriber. So I want to thank the following people for subscribing in the last few weeks. I want to thank uh, Jenny O'Haver, Haver, uh, Genevieve, Hans Nice, uh, Chad Christensen, Bill Griffiths, and Peter Jacobson. You guys rock. Thank you so much for your support. And uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, Earth Agents appreciates it too. Hey, I want to remind you to save the date. Our last show of the year is with uh, the rogue geologist Randall Carlson. He has just confirmed. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be the week of Christmas, probably the week before that. We're thinking about doing a best of 
Earth Ancients for the last show of the year. It depends on what the team can do. We're still uh, thinking about it. But uh, Randall will be the last interview, uh, either way, of the year. So check that out. Save the date. And that's the uh, it's the holiday. It's the last part of the year. And uh, got to have him on the show. Okay, that's it for this week. Uh, stay safe, be well, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.